0: No government vessel should have a convict crew. Men in their situation cannot fail to desire escape, and when such opportunities are afforded them, they would be a set of cowards who neglected them. The Colonist, February 11th, 1834 Hobart, where The Colonist was published, had particular reason to have complaints. This was the third time that an incident like this had happened in the past five years. First came the cypress in 1829, then came the badger in 1833. Now, the just-finished Frederick had been taken. And no one was certain where it had gone. Hello. And welcome to the Shipwreck Archive. Thank you. Would you happen to have the story, No Pirates on the Frederick? Here we are. Enjoy! One of the men who was responsible for the taking of the Frederick from the government and sailing away from Australia was a man named James Porter who would later write his version of events. Though it is partially a work of self-justification written by a man who finds himself in prison, the account does still offer some valuable information. James Porter was born around 1800, and by 1821, he had found himself on board the ship the Asia, being transported to Australia as a convict. He seems to have struggled to conform himself to authority at any point. He is described as a bad character, badly behaved in the jail while awaiting transportation, and disorderly while on the ship that brought him to Australia. The self-admitted thief, possible murderer, and sometimes sailor, was no stranger to escape attempts once he reached Australia. His second attempt to escape had ended with him being sentenced to death for having been illegally at large under a second conviction after someone who he had thought of as his friend turned him over to the constables for the reward. A man named Captain Welsh intervened, and James Porter was spared. But it was decided to send him to Macquarie Harbour, a place that was considered much harder to escape. James Porter did indeed continue to plot escape, while he acted as a model prisoner to try to lessen suspicion. His plan worked. In 1833, it was announced that the prisoners were all going to be moved to Port Arthur, but James Porter, as well as nine other prisoners, were selected to remain behind to finish working on the brig the Frederick, which was under construction at Macquarie Harbour and not done yet when the order to leave the Sarah Island convict settlement of Macquarie Harbor came. No doubt, James Porter's experience as a sailor, as well as his assignment in Macquarie Harbor as the coxswain of the pilot boat, had helped him gain this post. Three of the other prisoners were people with some experience of the sea. They were not left unguarded, though. There was also Captain Taw who was in charge of them, Mr. Hay, the shipbuilder, a steward, a mate, and four soldiers. These people were the largest obstacle if the convicts wanted to take the Frederick and leave Australia. On the 11th of January, the Frederick began her voyage from Macquarie Harbor. The small 100-ton bark did have some cargo. It was decided that very little from the colony was worth saving. Most of the buildings were in disrepair. But they did take the windows and doors with them on board of the Frederick. Their voyage started out with difficulty immediately, however. Adverse winds meant that they had to take anchor at Wellington Head, they spent the night of the 12th there, and everything seemed as though it was normal on board the ship. But that would change the next day. It was later admitted by everyone that it was a very well-planned-out event. The next morning, the convicts requested permission to go ashore and wash their clothing. The pilot gave his permission. This was partially a result of the good relationship that had been fostered between the prisoners and those who were overseeing them during their stay at Macquarie building the ship. After going to shore for a time, the prisoners returned without incident to the ship. What no one other than them knew was that they were now armed. Going to shore to wash their clothing was actually to give them a chance to prepare their weapons including pistols that John Barker, one of the prisoners, had made for them from musket barrels. James Porter described John Barker as a man who was good at everything, and reading his account, it does seem as though the escape attempt would have been impossible if it was not for his presence. Even though they were armed, the prisoners did not want to hurt those on board who had been assigned to watch them. In order to make the takeover of the ship more peaceful, James Porter decided to lessen the number of people on board of the ship by suggesting to three of the men that they go fishing with him. As they launched the boat, James Porter pretended to come down suddenly ill, and so the three men went fishing without him. It would later be claimed by a newspaper that the two soldiers in the group had gone fishing without the captain's permission, but no other account suggests this. There seems to have been enough trust on board of the ship that no one considered that this might be a trap. With three men gone, the odds swung in the favor of the convicts as far as numbers. James Porter invited one of the two remaining soldiers on board to come listen to him sing, and when his companions gave him the signal, he presented his pistol to the man and ordered him into the forecastle. The soldier obeyed without any sound, and the conspirators put the hatch on the forecastle and then placed a small kedge anchor onto it to ensure the soldier would not be able to raise the alarm easily. With this being done, they turned their attention to the others. Soon, the other soldier and the mate joined the first soldier in the forecastle, still all done quietly and without the alarm being raised. James Porter then snuck to the aft deck to gather up all the weapons on board that belonged to the soldiers. Meanwhile, the captain, carpenter, and steward were drinking in the cabin. But when one of the prisoners confronted them, a struggle began. It was three to one, but since the three were all drunk, the prisoner was able to get away and onto the deck, where the group of conspirators then shouted for them to get on deck and surrender. The three men in the cabin were armed, and they now brought out their weapons as well, turning it into a standoff for some time with the prisoners shouting that they really did not want to hurt them if they would just surrender. It was only when the convicts finally shouted that they would fire down on the men in the cabin that they surrendered, and they had their arms tied behind their backs. With this, the convicts signaled the fishing boat to return to the ship. The men in the fishing boat were even easier to subdue than the men in the cabin had been since they were taken entirely by surprise. And soon, all of the men who had been guarding the convicts found themselves on the ship's jolly boat. That was not to say that they were roughly treated. The men who asked to bring their clothing from the ship were obliged And when Mr. Hayes, the shipbuilder, complained that he had a bad back, the convicts chose not to bind his hands behind his back like the rest. The only thing they refused the people they were removing from the ship was a pistol, on the grounds that they could not be entirely certain for what purpose it was going to be used. They rowed all of the people who were not convicts on the ship to shore, and landed them and then spent an anxious night, worried that they might try to retake the ship. The next day, things continued as civil as before. They brought all the provisions on board the ship to the deck, and divided them equally, deciding to give the people on shore half since there were nine of them and ten convicts on the Frederick. They also took the only two bottles of wine and some medical supplies, And gave them to the shipbuilder, since his back was so painful that they felt bad for him. While on shore, they asked if anyone needed anything, and the soldiers asked for their watch coats, which were brought to them. James Porter would say that when they brought the medical supplies for Hayes, he said that if they gave up the plan for escape, they could pretend as though none of this had happened, and that he would swear to never tell anyone. But the prisoners refused the offer. James Porter describes departing with the soldiers as pleasant, and so do some early accounts right after the Frederick was taken. Those on shore expressed some concern for the convicts and their safety since they had given up half of their supplies, and there were some doubts as to whether or not the ship was up for the journey the convicts had planned. Still, once the convicts insisted they were taking the ship and going. The people on shore wished them well. If this was the case, the warm feelings of those who had been left on shore were soon depleted since the convicts had said they would leave them a boat. But the Frederick sailed off without leaving them any means of water travel, and the group found themselves with a long walk ahead of them. The nearest place they could think of for help was 80 miles away at Circular Head and they did not have enough provisions to last them that long. They were able to dig up some potatoes and build a raft to take them to the other side of the estuary. On the 25th of January, they arrived at Cape Grimm, where they were able to finally find food and shelter and raise the alarm about what had happened. All of them had managed to survive the journey. For those on board the Frederick, Their difficult journey had just begun. The brig had never been intended for the open sea, she was designed for coastal use, and the wood she was built with was still green. It was also later speculated that the men on board of her had sailed with too much canvas and driven her too hard. The entire voyage they had to keep the pumps working at two hour intervals so they could stay afloat. There was also the previously mentioned ratio of sailors to non-sailors on board. Only four of the ten had any experience working on ships, which meant that almost all of the labor fell onto them. They also experienced a gale for nine days, which required at least two men at the helm at all times to keep on course. They did at least have a reliable navigator and captain, As James Porter had said before, John Barker was good at everything. After six weeks, on the 27th of February, they managed to see the coast of South America in the distance. James Porter had spent time in Chile back in the days of his being a sailor, and he had convinced the others that Valparaiso would be a good spot to avoid the English authorities, but by now, their ship was literally sinking under their feet. They had the benefit of three carpenters on board, who made the ship's boat into a vessel that would survive the remaining 40-mile voyage to shore, and they abandoned the Frederick, which sank entirely shortly after. James Porter expressed some regret for the loss of the ship that they had built with their own hands, but they had used her too hard and for a purpose that she had never been intended. With her loss, Valparaiso was no longer an option, and they came ashore near Valdivia. Initially, the inhabitants assumed they were shipwrecked sailors and treated them with kindness, but while ashore, They split into two groups of five and then came back together, which proved to be a terrible mistake. One of the groups got drunk and said more than they should have about how they had actually come to shore to their hosts, and the entire group was arrested by the governor as they entered Valdivia. For the entire week that they were confined, the whole group denied being anything but shipwrecked sailors. With James Porter, who spoke the language, fabricating the story that the rest all went along with. That was with the exception of a man named Cheshire, who none of them were very fond of, and who was only included in the escape in the first place because he had overheard them talking about it, and to keep him silent, they had to make him their companion. Now, deciding that it was all over and trying to save himself, Cheshire told the entire story to the governor. With this, the other prisoners expressed a wish to the governor that, if he did believe Cheshire's story, he treat Cheshire the same as he treated them, to which he agreed. The governor had no intention of handing them over to the authorities, however, or to even keep them imprisoned. He made each of them swear they would remain in Valdivia if they were released from prison, and he put them to work, sending a message to the governor in Santiago that the escaped convicts had thrown themselves under the protection of their flag. With all of them released, Cheshire threw himself under the protection of the governor, completely certain that his attempted betrayal of the others would end badly for him if he were to meet them on the street. Since he was a trained carpenter, the governor found him useful to have around as well, They remained in Valdivia for some time, but the governor of Valdivia was beginning to experience a lot of external pressure from England and Australia for the return of the men, who were now considered pirates. The escaped convicts, feeling that they were beginning to overstay their welcome, and finding that they were more and more tightly watched and controlled, began to plot their escape three of them hopped on board an American whaling ship as it left the harbor and made their escape that way. Another three of them had been put to work building a whaleboat for the governor, on which the remaining seven convicts hoped to escape on, but the three who had been building the boat decided to escape a day early, leaving their four companions to face the wrath of the betrayed governor on their own. The men who were stranded in Valdivia were James Porter, William Shires. Charles Lyon and William Cheshire. They were arrested almost immediately, and though James Porter attempted another escape once he heard that an English ship was on its way to pick them up, they were all soon handed over to the English authorities and were taken back to England. In England, The judicial system ran into a new problem. All four of the men denied their identities. Having previously called himself James Connor or James O'Connor, according to prison records, James Porter now told the authorities that he was an Irishman named James O'Reilly, in spite of matching all of the notes that were made about him in the prison records including a distinctive scar, and that he was blind in his left eye. Still, they needed to properly identify the prisoners before they could put them on trial. So, they were sent to Hobart Town, where they were formally identified and put on trial in April of 1837. The trial brought a lot of attention, and the entire time the courtroom was packed, Shires argued that he had done everything he could to save the lives of those who they had taken the ship from, and treated them with kindness. But that he had not had any choice but to join the taking of the ship, because to not join would put himself in danger. As Porter describes Shires as one of his closest confidants, only surpassed by Barker, there is some doubt about this version. Leon made a similar argument. The newspapers described Shires as a quiet man, Cheshire as a weak lad, and Leon's and Porter as very intelligent. Indeed, through the trial, it was noted that Porter busied himself with taking notes, which he then would reference when he was able to ask questions of a witness or defend himself. The judge, Chief Justice Petter was clearly sympathetic because as he sent the jury off to decide the sentence, he asked them to consider if the ship was on the high seas, was the Frederick registered, and if the convicts could be considered part of her crew. At the end of the trial, though, all four men were declared to be guilty of piracy and sentenced to hang. The legal battle was not over, though. All four convicts filed a series of appeals which delayed the execution and kept the courts busy over the next two years. Meanwhile, James Porter wrote his autobiography, which found its way into the newspapers. Fashioning himself into a victim of circumstance more than anything, as well as a brave adventurer, public opinion began to swing in his favor. In the end, The convicts made a series of successful legal arguments to the courts, which were sent to England and ruled in favor of the prisoners, who had clearly fashioned their arguments after the questions asked by Chief Justice Petter at the end of their trial. The first was that they had not stolen the ship on the high seas. The second was that they were not crew members, so they were not guilty of mutiny. And the third, and most successful argument, the ship had never been registered. Far from stealing a ship, they stated they had stolen a pile of wood, rope, and instruments that were in the shape of a ship. Theft, yes. Piracy, no. It was decided not to hang them. And in the middle of the night, the prisoners found themselves shipped to Norfolk Island a place with a reputation for harsh conditions and difficulty in escaping, much like the Sarah Island Prison Colony. In 1846, James Porter was given a ticket of leave, which allowed him some freedom, but still required him to check in, which he did, until a year later when he disappeared entirely. One final escape. Though this time, most likely, on a ship rather than a bundle of wood. His fate is unknown, but some have speculated he might have made his way back to Chile. For more information, please see James Porter's autobiography between 1840 and 1844, or see our other sources in the description below. Thank you for listening. Thank you for visiting the Shipwreck Archives. See you soon.